into Acts, uh, using Scripture together, yes? Uh, and I, I put out the charge for you last week. You can do this. Uh, and so what we're going to do here, uh, we're going to stand here, um, and then we're going to read uh, the Romans 6, uh, 10, and 11. Uh, we'll read the passage together, uh, and then we'll say the reference. So I'd invite everyone to stand here. Um, want to memorize it, you can read it. But if you have memorized it uh, and are committing to us, and read it here. So um, if you would, let's do this together. Romans 6. Memorizing passages like that is a good thing for your soul because you're able to then think about and meditate on these passages beyond just when you actually have the Bible handy. Now, I understand it's 2017, Brandon. Like, I've got my iPhone. There's never a single time that I don't have access to the Word of God. That's true. Um, However, there's something different about when you're just mulling over these verses. What does it mean that Jesus broke the power of sin? That's not just a, a verse that you read, see it, and then move on. That's like a, that's a kind of candy that you've got to just suck on. All right? You don't like, it's not throwing chicken nuggets down and it's just really easy. And I don't know if you digest chicken nuggets or not. But there are passages that are more like hard candy that you've got to just take time. And if you try to just bite into it, you're going to hurt yourself. Um, so with, with passages like these, these harder ones, take time, memorize them, and then consider, what does it mean that Jesus broke the power of sin? He no longer, uh, now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So I too should consider myself dead to the power of sin. And what does it mean that I should be alive to God? You're only able to ask those questions if you have the word deep in your heart. And so um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. And I've, um, I, I kind of gave us the 30,000-foot level view last week. Uh, the, the view was really looking down. What's, what's God doing in Pentecost, in starting the church? My big idea was is that I think God wants the church to live these spirit-filled lives that end up advancing the gospel. That God wants the church, which is us, to be spirit-filled people who advance the gospel. And we saw God do it in an extravagant way where he sent his spirit down upon people who were gathered in Jerusalem. Um, He gave them the ability to preach the gospel to people who had different languages. Those people see what's going on, receive the word, are convicted of sin, put their faith, repent, and then come to trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So in that scene, uh, we looked at it from the high level. But what was interesting to me is, is, is later on I started thinking about how can, we, how can we do that? Like how can we, as a church, bring about the kind of revival that we see in the Bible? And not just the Bible, but throughout history. If you've spent time looking through history, you know that uh, a great thing happened at Pentecost. 3,000 people get saved in one day. But there are also periods of time where people come to faith in great numbers. Uh, You can think about these milestone moments in history, the the, the Reformation that we just celebrated the 500-year anniversary of. 
Um, how many people? Uh, I won't do it. Uh, you, you, may, you may know uh, of, of the Great Awakening, which is the period of time, actually before the United States became a country, this is just with the colonies and in England and in the colonies, uh, there was an upswell, a return of the church back to um, historic Christianity. Uh, one of the people in that campaign would have been Jonathan Edwards. Uh, now, how many people remember reading Jonathan Edwards in, in high school? I, I did. We had to read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and I got the impression that Jonathan Edwards was this mean, loud, fire, brimstone guy. Uh, if, if you end up studying some of the revivals and some of his ministry, I think you end up coming away with a little bit of a different attitude of who he is and what he's like. Um, but I've got a quote from him that describes what it was like in his uh, town during this time of revival. Is it up there? Yeah, it's pretty tough to read. I'll read it from my page. Um, reflecting on what had happened, he said, it pleased God to display his free and sovereign mercy in the conversion of a great multitude of souls in a short period of time, turning them from a formal, cold, and careless profession of Christianity to the lively exercise of every Christian grace and the powerful practice of our holy religion. What, What he saw is that there was a moment when he was just doing his normal ministry, when there was an unusual outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that he said God saw it fit to bring conversion to a great multitude. And now, conversion is an interesting word there, because he would have been preaching to a crowd of Christians. His ministry would have been to the church. And he said in that moment, God saw it fit, to bring conversion to a great multitude of people. And he describes it, turning them from a formal, cold, and careless profession of Christianity into something lively. And, and so when I'm thinking about what does it mean to bring about revival, I think that we can talk about repentance. That's what we do as an individual Christian. As, as I come to faith, I repent of my sins, put my faith in Jesus. And in some ways, I am renewed as a singular person. That's a true thing. I'm talking about something beyond just the individual. I'm talking about a corporate-type gathering. What can we do as a church to bring about that type? Edwards would say, God chose to do it. It wasn't because he was doing anything extraordinary. It wasn't because he was doing some new special technique. God saw it fit to display his free and sovereign mercy. That's how you get revival. You wait for God to come. That's one way of looking at it. Fast forward about 50 years, there's a second great awakening um, in the early 19th century, 1800s. One of the people in that campaign would have been Charles Finney. Charles Finney brought a very different approach to revival. Finney believed you were able to, through methods bring about revivals. In fact, they would start planning them. He would go around. He would say, on April 15th in Gordonville, Pennsylvania, there's going to be a revival. Spirit of God is going to come, and we are going to plan a revival on that day. And some of us have grown up with some Finney-type understandings of what revival is. We see revival as the time where we come together. It might be a camp meeting, a tent meeting, some sort of gathering in which it's designed for people to have the Spirit of God come upon them. 
Now, what's interesting is, as I'm reading about uh, revivals, is how much of our modern-day understanding of evangelicalism really can be traced back to Charles Finney. Finney believed, well, if we time the music right, if we time the altar call right, we can manipulate the will to put their faith in God. He, he didn't have an altar call, but our altar calls that you would hear of are in a response to Charles Finney. He had what was called uh, an anxious bench where he would have people come and, and he was preaching directly to them at this anxious bench so that they might uh, repent of their sin. And it was full of emotionalism. It was full of, unfortunately, a lot of false converts. And so on the other end of the spectrum would be Edwards on one side, Finney on the other, who says, yeah, you can manufacture it. Now, as a pastor, I want to see lots of people come to faith. But what I don't want to do is give people the false impression that they are saved. What I'm after, and I think what we are after as a church, is true and genuine repentance. And so this morning, we're going to look at the same text as we did last week where we saw the revival, but we're going to look at it uh, more from the, the individual repentance side. Not necessarily so that we can replicate it, but we, so that we know when we have the real deal. So I'm going to read the entire uh, chapter of Acts chapter 2 to get us back in, in the mood. And then uh, we'll look at um, three aspects of the early church. Here we go. On the day of Pentecost, all of the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like a roaring of a mighty windstorm and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are from Galilee and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean, they asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk, that's all. Then, here, pay attention to what Peter is saying in his sermon. Then Peter stepped forward with the eleven other apostles and shouted to the crowd, Listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. But what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. 
Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will bring wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before that day, before that great and glorious day the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus of Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen. And his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life. For death could not keep him in its grip. King David said about him, I see the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope. For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself. For he died and was buried, and his tomb is still here among us. But he was a prophet, and he knew God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now, he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he has promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. For David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So, let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, to your children, and to those who are far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all the listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, 
and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came upon, uh, came over them all, and the apostles performed many miracles and signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together in the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. My big idea for this morning is that the church is both saved and shaped by grace. It's not a new statement. It shouldn't be one. Hopefully if you've heard me preach before, you've heard something very similar to that. But I say it as a way of reminder. The church is saved and shaped by grace. And I I make that a point, and I'll show it from the text, but one of the reasons that I repeat it is that it's so counterintuitive to the way that we ordinarily live. Grace is not the concept that works at your job. At your job, it's all on your performance. In school, it's all on your performance. In dating, it's all on your performance. And then when we come to the scriptures, what we see is that we are saved by grace and grace alone. And I think a lot of us would just say, yes, I put my faith in that. I believe that with my whole heart. I believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again to save sinners like me. And I would be saved uh, not by my own works, but by the work of Christ. I think we would answer that. And then when it comes time to living out our faith as a Christian, there is in some sense a desire to go not back to grace, but to the law. And so now that I am a Christian, it's my job and it's my duty to live out faithful, holy lives. And so I'm going to claw and work to show myself to be a good Christian. And I think in some ways, maybe even just in Lancaster County, that work ethic comes out strong. And so I make the simple statement, my big idea, that the gospel or that the church is saved and shaped by grace because it sounds so different than what we're used to everywhere else. My right, first point that will get us there is I want us to look to see how God ta- or how Peter talks about salvation from the text. My first main point, not my big idea, my first main point is that God accomplished the work of salvation through Christ. Take a look at verse 17. Verse 17, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon them. 18, in those days, I will pour out my servant. 19, I will cause wonders in heavens and sign below. Verse 23, but God knew what would happen, that his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. 24, but God released him from the horrors of death. Drop down to 33. 
Now, he's exalted the place of highest honor at God's right hand. The Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out. God's hand is in all steps of salvation. From eternity past, the plan of salvation, the work of salvation being carried out through Christ, God accomplishes salvation for his people through Jesus Christ. God accomplishes it. Now again, this is not a big point. If, if you're familiar with Christianity, you understand how unique this is. This is not a kind of earn your way through uh, to salvation, earn our way back to God, climb the ladder, perform the religious duties. No, no, no. In Christianity, we see that God accomplishes everything that we need for salvation. God accomplishes it. And I think Peter is making that case to a group of Jews who would have had at least a lingering feeling that my status with God depends on the work that I do. And Peter is pointing to them saying, God accomplished it. It was God's plan. It's happening through Christ. You are not saved by your own works. You are saved because God has accomplished the work for you. I know that we have access to the word, and so some of these phrases are familiar to us because we, know, we, we have the rest of the New Testament. But the Jews who would have been hearing Peter's message, this is, this is the first time they're hearing it. And so when Jesus, or when, when Peter ends up saying the next line, the church receives salvation by believing that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. What would they have known about Jesus apart from what they heard Peter describe? The only thing that these Jews would have heard coming to Jerusalem was that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord. And they believed it. We have access to all kinds of evidences that that first group of people didn't. What makes me believe that the Spirit of God is the one who's stirring the affections is that it's not because Peter gave all kinds of evidence to help them to see that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. He simply provided the facts that Jesus was the Son of God, the one to whom the Jews were longing to have And people believed it. Christians are saved because they put their faith that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. Again, it's not that big of a, for those of you who are Christians, this is not new stuff, but I want us to be able to see and savor how unique it is. To say that Jesus is Lord is to say that he is our authority. To say that he is our Messiah is to say that he is our Savior. There are people who have lords and saviors, but they don't call him or it Jesus Christ. There are competing authorities in your life. There is some other force that is competing against the authority of Christ. Someone who is looking for you to obey them, follow them, 
uh, look to them to supply you with what you need. There are alternative messiahs. There are alternative saviors who promise to free you from the hell that you find yourself living in. They make promises of if you sacrifice, if you live, if you do this, then you will find liberation. There are competing lords and messiahs out there, but there's only one true Lord, one true Messiah, and that's Jesus Christ. And I make that statement because I find myself, it's easy for me to wander from what I know is true. I have to repeat these simple statements. I have to start every morning remembering who's Lord? Who is my Messiah? Because that's going to determine who I follow and where I put my trust. Repentance to me is a daily type thing. I don't think that every morning I wake up and get saved, but I think I have to wake up in every morning and point myself back to Christ. I think my, my second point should be up on the screen. The church receives salvation by believing Jesus is Lord and Messiah. To me, that is a truth that we need to repeat back to ourselves over and over and over again. And that's what repentance is. Repentance is sometimes remembering the fact that we know something is true, but we forget it. God had all types of people in the Old Testament to whom he had made great promises and to whom he had done great things, and he knew that without some sort of intervention, they would forget it and they would wander. He, he predicted it, that I'm going to bring you into the promised land and you're going to forget. Another generation is going to grow up and they won't know what I've done. They won't know my promises that I've made to you. And so he instructs them, Build standings, build, build monuments, write this stuff down, pass it on. You might have to hear it over and over and over again, but I don't want you to forget the most simple thing, that belief in Jesus is what saves us, believing that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. Now, if we believe that, and I'm going to say believe, not know. Everyone in here now knows that. I've said it. It's known. Salvation comes by believing in Jesus as Lord and Messiah. You know it. Do you believe it? There, there's a difference. Uh, Richard Loveless is, is, is a guy who, uh, as he's in, in investigating revivals, is trying to understand what revival is like. And he, he described it kind of like understanding that you are a son. So if you have a father. Uh, picture me with my dad. Second service, he's going to be sitting over there, and I know that I am his son. I know that. But there are certain moments that my dad and I have where I do more than just know it, I feel it. When, when my dad comes and he wraps his arm around me, or I go to him and I bury my head in his neck. My status hasn't changed. I, I know that I'm his son, but in that moment I'm feeling something. There's a heart component to 
salvation or to at least that truth. When we are saved by believing that Jesus is Lord and Messiah, it's not saved by some head knowledge. We're saved by believing it. And I want not just people to be able to say, yeah, yeah, I believe that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I want people to believe it. Because it's true belief that will bring about true repentance. You notice uh, the people were cut to the heart based on what Peter said. Peter said, this man, Jesus, whom you crucified is Lord and Messiah. Peter's words cut them to their heart. Something happened where they were like, we believe that. That's true. And now what? Now what what should we do now that we believe that? Now that we know that Jesus is Lord and Savior and I feel it with my heart, now what? What's the proper response to believing the gospel? Repentance is the answer. The third point, repentance produces. I'm going to say two things from the text. Produces two things. Devotion to grace and displays of grace. Repentance produces joyful devotion to grace and displays of grace. Verse 42. All the believers devoted themselves to what I'm going to say is three things. It's broken up into four in, in, in the text. The apostles' teaching to fellowship, to the sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. One of the things that we see the church doing, and, and this is descriptive, it's not prescriptive. However, if we see a theme run enough times through the text of the scriptures, we can conclude that this is a good thing that we should pursue. Devotion to three different things. Hearing from God, speaking to God, and participating in God's body. These are the things that we see the early church doing as an act of repentance. They turn from their sin and they turn to these, I'm calling them, habits of grace. There are opportunities for you to receive grace. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is what a believer does. A believer believes that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. One of the responses of the heart will be devotion to God's word, to hearing from God. Now, they didn't have the New Testament. What they had is the apostles' teaching. And what we have is the apostles' teaching and the whole canon of Scripture. As believers, as the church, if we truly do believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord of our lives, a sign of true repentance, a sign of believing that is going to be devotion to certain things. I believe we would be devoted to God's Word. I believe that. If somebody were to write a testimony of Keystone Church and describe what was going on, would our historian write something like Luke writes to describe what's going on? And all the believers at Keystone were devoted to... I want to say that we would be. I I want Keystone to be devoted to hearing from God in His Word. And we can do that in a lot of different ways. Preaching is one of them. Hopefully, um, reading your Bibles on your own. Because it's 2017, you literally have it with you all the time. You have access to the word that the world has never known before. And not just in uh, 
King James where you can't really even understand what's going on, but in your own vernacular, you, you can understand what's going on. You can read the Bible. You can memorize the Bible. And as you memorize it, you're able to meditate on it. There are certain ways because of, uh, I don't know, just how different minds work. Some of you will enjoy reading the scriptures. Um, I, I kind of try to do both, where I'll read large sections together, and then I'll also study portions of it. Um, studying goes deep. Reading goes um, wide. And I try to understand both the, the full scope as well as the depth. You, in 2017, have access to all kinds of online commentaries. You have access to uh, 2,000 years of church doctrine and understanding. There, there's no reason why the church in 2017, can't be devoted to the Word. We have access to it. The question is, are we? Are we devoted to God's Word? Are we devoted to God in prayer? Now, that's like the fourth one in that list, to prayer. At Keystone, it's not an accident that we pray as much as we do on both on Sunday mornings and through the week. We, we believe that we end up accessing grace through God's Word and by interacting with Him in prayer. If someone were to write of Keystone Church, would they say, and all of Keystone Church was devoted to prayer? I hope so. I want us to, both corporately and individually. Now, it's going to be tough for a historian to probably visit home to home to see if you are a committed prayer at home. I think what they might look at is, is this church committed to prayer corporately? We've got corporate prayer gatherings that happen during the week. One happens on Sunday morning right up here before this service starts. Um, during the week, we've got listed times in our, bullet or, uh, in our weekly of when we pray together. I think one of the signs of true repentance and believing that Jesus is Lord, our authority, and our Messiah is that we will be devoted to both receiving grace from his word and receiving grace from having this relationship with God through prayer. And the, and the third one, which is kind of like the middle section, verse 42, fellowship, sharing, and meals, uh, including the Lord's Supper. There's this communion piece, uh, that word fellowship, koinonia, it means having things in common. The fellowship piece, the Lord's Supper, this is a communal event. And what we see is that when the church places their faith in Jesus Christ, one of the things that they're devoted to is church life. Again, that historian comes to Keystone, does he see and all of Keystone were devoted to hearing from God, being committed and devoted to his word, to praying to God and, and speaking to him, and they were devoted to each other and to church life, to living life together, to fellowshipping together, to having sharing things in common, that they ended up drawing on each other to mature in their faith. It, we have a lot of things that go on at Keystone during the week. And I've told you in announcements, we don't just put stuff in the bulletin to make your lives busy. We are trying to grant you opportunities to receive the grace that comes from his word, comes from prayer, and comes from being part of a body. The gift of the church is a blessing. That God just doesn't save individuals but saves a church is a blessing. But we only take advantage of the blessing when we're part of the body. 
when we're belonging to each other, knowing each other. So this Thursday or this Wednesday when we have our Thanksgiving thing, we're designing that because we believe that if we were devoted to sharing life together, we would receive more grace. We, w- we, would, we would be encouraged by the preaching of the word and, and receive grace that way. We'd receive grace by prayer, but we'd also receive grace by seeing faith worked out among each other. There is a sense in which the church builds itself up, encourages each other. My question is, if we're not committed to God's word, if we're not committed to God's prayer, if we're not committed to God's body, what's the proper response? And I think it's to turn back to God, to repent, to come back to the truth that Jesus is Lord and Messiah and hope that our hearts believe it and that we would experience the conviction that would lead us to the kinds of devotion that we see in the early church. Let me pray for us. God, I don't, I don't know what the future is of Keystone. I know that your church will stand. But Lord, I also know that local churches, they, they ebb and flow. When we see in Revelation that you will extinguish the lampstand of churches. You'll, you'll, you'll close the doors God, I pray that you would bring us back to our first love. That there would not be a heart that fades away from you at Keystone. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would bring the conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord and Messiah and that that truth would revolutionize the way that we look at all of life that it would save us, but it would also shape our lives. That you'd give us the ability to continue to receive grace through your word and through prayer and through life in the body, these ordinary means of grace. I pray, Lord, that it would produce a kind of joy in us that is contagious and that your word would spread because of our testimony. I ask you to do those things in Jesus' name. Amen.